0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Think about
1: Valentine's Day. Not the stuffed animals and chocolate and cards. Zero in on those flowers. Roses, probably red, probably a dozen of them. But here's a quandary that perhaps you haven't really thought about a lot. Valentine's Day is in February, right? Where the heck are roses coming from in the dead of winter?
2: But that's kind of part of the appeal of flowers on Valentine's Day. When it's all cold and gray, that pop of red will warm any heart. And it's like you're bringing a little bit of the outside in. See what I did there?
1: (laughs) This is producer Molly Donahue, by the way. Hi, Sam. Hi.
2: So, anyway... When you want to get roses in the dead of winter, or to be more specific, at 5 p.m. on Valentine's Day, where do you go?
1: All right, this guy's getting flowers, too. He's uh, got, like, a sports jacket, sports... No,
2: he's going for the lettuce. The flower shop? The supermarket. Producer Taylor Quimby and I went to the supermarket. Uh, I just noticed you had a couple different bouquets in your basket. Uh, what are you looking for?
1: Um, something pretty that I won't get yelled at for. Oh man, like three people right at once, straight for the flowers.
2: So when did you pick up those bouquets? Did you scout them out this morning?
1: You better believe it. (laughs) (laughs) You better believe it. (laughs) Uh, Was there good selection?
2: It was pretty picked over by the time we got there.
1: A lot of last minute people coming in? Yeah, a lot.
3: You know, and they're kind of getting a little upset with me. They're like, oh, this is all you guys got? You know, people are stealing flowers
1: from each other, so... (laughs) Stealing flowers? What do you (laughs) mean, like, taking them out of each other's car? But just stop and think about this for a second. Those roses that you're squabbling over in the grocery store aisles, how did those even get there? Fresh-cut flowers are nature's most ephemeral phenomenon. Poets have written whole collections using blossoms as a metaphor for the briefness of life. Where on earth did these roses come from in the dead of winter?
2: The truth is that even those kind of sad looking carnations in the supermarket might be better traveled than you are.
1: Mm, I don't know about that.
2: Well, settle down. I think even you might be surprised by this one.
1: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And today we're going to trace a path that a cut flower takes, step by step.
2: We're going to look inside the $31 billion American floral industry to show you what it takes to ensure that nature's shortest-lived product will arrive in the grocery store or florist's fridge and onto your kitchen table looking fresh as a daisy. And that means starting down south.
1: Really down south.
2: South America south.
1: But not Antarctica south. No, not that far.
2: Not that far. I am in the middle of the invernadera, as we call it, it's white plastic. That's um, Carolina Lozad-Leon, an Ecuadorian producer who went to check out the rose industry um, for us. She's at one of the many rose farms that blanket the region around Quito, Ecuador. There are rows and rows of, of just, where well, they were planted in November.
4: Roses, red kind, they said, was.
1: Today, roughly 80% of our imported flowers come from Ecuador and Colombia. But this wasn't always the case. Most flowers sold in the U.S. used to be grown in the U.S. New Jersey had a handle on the rose market until it became more economical to move to California, where real estate wasn't as valuable yet. Colorado, with high plateaus, warm days, and cool nights, was also a big producer. But in 1967, a graduate student in horticulture named David Cheever at Colorado State University asked a key question.
2: It was pretty basic. Where's the best place in the world to grow flowers?
1: And...
4: Roses happen to grow very well along the equator. They like warm days and cooler
2: nights, and the stems get very long. That's Amy Stewart, author of Flower Confidential, and the woman we turn to for her expertise in the flower industry. It turns out places like Ecuador and Colombia, regions along the equator with high plains, cool nights, and, oh yeah, low labor costs, are the best places in the world to grow flowers. Another advantage to places like Colombia? Bogota is a convenient three-hour flight from Miami. And we'll explain why that's important in a few minutes.
1: This feels pretty unnatural, doesn't it? It's almost like the global government's central planning committee mandated that this is where the flower growing district was going to be.
2: It's kind of ridiculous and a little colonial.
1: But business flocked down there. Colombia now exports more than a billion dollars worth of flowers each year. And most of that comes to the U.S. Other South American countries like Ecuador, Guatemala and Costa Rica followed suit. But Colombia still has the biggest share.
2: And this fundamentally changed the way we buy flowers here in the U.S. Before the 1970s, flowers weren't really sold in supermarkets. The business in Colombia was just so successful that all the blossoms coming into the country needed outlets other than florists. And thus, the supermarket bouquet was
1: born. Which illustrates the point. Flowers don't just do really well in these regions. They also do really well for these regions. At least in terms of making money.
4: There's a guy six-sagging through a rose, and um, through pesticides, fumigating, is that the word in English?
1: (laughs) Carolina is describing the scene at one of the greenhouses near Tabacundo, Ecuador. You've got some workers weeding, while another sprays down the rose with some sort of chemical.
4: And he's all covered, but the rest are not covered. Uh, They're wearing long sleeves and gloves and hats of the sun, the sun has
2: come out. Because flowers don't go through the same morning. inspection process as produce entering the United States, the emphasis is on making sure there is nothing visually wrong with the product. No bugs, no fungus. So, there's a lot of spraying of these flowers. And at least at this one greenhouse, not a lot of precautions for the workers. Carolina said about 10 minutes after being exposed to the spray, her arms started itching, and some of the workers laughed when they saw her scratching.
1: Apparently, they're pretty used to getting it all over them.
2: He's going row by row. Um, It's spraying everywhere. This seems like a good time to point out that this isn't an expose on labor practices and pesticide use in the flower-growing industry. But from what we heard from Carolina, and from looking at what other reporters have found, it's fair to say it's a mixed bag. Workers are exposed to some nasty stuff, but it's also an industry that has bolstered the local economies of flower-growing regions. 90,000 people are directly employed by the Columbia flower industry alone.
1: That's José Iván Cholango Sánchez. He goes by Don Iván. He owns his own small flower farm in La Esperanza, northeast of Quito, Ecuador. He's explaining the timetable that goes into growing roses. Some will need to be cut in a few weeks, others in a month. This might seem like a hassle, but there's a reason flowers rule this area.
2: In this region, prices and demand for produce is much lower. Don Ivan says he'd need about 12 acres of land to make it worth farming potatoes.
1: Which is not much land.
2: Not by American farming standards. But if you just got a little plot of land in the Ecuadorian highlands, you can still make a living with just a couple greenhouses and growing batches of a few thousand roses at a time, selling them to flower-crazy Americans.
1: Don Ivan starts cutting around 7 a.m., and that can last about two hours. Then there's weeding and cutting off the buds so that the stock grows straight. Cut flowers are then put into water to be hydrated and then packed off to the processor, where they'll be classified, cut down again, and stored in a cold room.
2: In Don Ivan's case, that processor is the Asociación de Productores Agricola Pedro Moncoyo. How was my accent, Sam?
1: You studied French, didn't you?
2: I did, yes. It's a co-op, formed as a way for smaller farms to group together and sell their flowers to wholesalers. It's an alternative for smaller farms, and this one formed in response to poor conditions on bigger farms in this particular area.
4: That's
1: Isabel Ramirez, director of the association, talking about the cycle between the two major floral holidays, Valentine's Day and Mother's Day two big booms for the flower industry that come just a couple of months apart.
2: And for small-scale growers trying to satisfy demands, it makes sense to have an association like this handling your sales for you. Someone like Don Ivan can still be in the greenhouse cutting by 7 a.m., while the office handles sales calls on Moscow time.
4: Isabel's explaining
1: that when her sales team comes in early in the morning, they overlap for just a few hours with Russian buyers who are just about to head home for the day. Selling to folks in time zones in the US is much easier. But all this adds up to a setup that really works for small growers. Tony
2: Van says he gets about 33 cents per rose through the association.
1: So while a single rose might cost you a couple of bucks in the grocery store, most of that money isn't going to the growers themselves. It's going to the rest of that supply chain that gets that rose to you.
4: So a flower grower might only get 10 cents on the dollar. And every time it passes through another layer of wholesale, distributor, retailer,
2: uh, the price gets doubled or tripled again. Which brings us to our next step in this daisy supply chain.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Whether or not a flower is coming from an association or a big farm, flowers end up packed together and trundled off to a distributor, then stuffed onto a freighter plane or in the space left in the cargo holds of passenger planes. These are usually some of the last flights to leave at night to limit the amount of time they spend idling on the hot tarmac.
2: And this is actually a really wild part of this process. Nothing gets shipped by air these days.
1: Yeah, Alex Madrigal had this great line in this audio documentary, Containers, that he just did, noting that nothing ships by air these days except for fresh flowers and fuck-ups.
2: Which really says it all. After their luxurious airplane trip, flowers wind up, almost certainly... In beautiful, tropical Miami, USA. But, okay, we had to ask. After all that effort to keep the flowers chilled, why Miami? Most of the flowers in the United States come through the Miami
4: International Airport because they have a cold storage facility there that's ready to receive flowers and food and it'll get inspected and go on a truck. So maybe by Wednesday or Thursday, it's on a truck driving uh, across the country to wherever you live. And it might go at that point into a wholesale market or a distributor where it's once again, gonna be in some kind of uh, cold storage for a day or two or longer.
1: Like Amy said, sometimes flowers go straight to distributors, but it's those wholesale markets that caught our interest.
2: Lucky for us, there's one right nearby, the Boston Flower Exchange. Can you smell, Frisia?
3: Oh, wow. That's a beautiful bunch.
2: This is basically the flowery version of a fish or meat market, complete with very local vendors hawking their wares. It's catered to people who really care about their arrangements looking good and want to see what they're getting before they buy it. Getting a bunch of wilty flowers off the internet does not work for high-end florists and many local vendors.
1: Oh, it smells so good in here.
3: Is
2: that steam over
3: there? Yeah, for the orchids, yep.
1: That,
2: by the way, is Emily Herzig. She owns a floral design studio up in Littleton, New Hampshire, and she was nice enough to let us tag along with her.
1: Anyway, those are actual olive tree branches?
2: Branches
3: from olive trees, yes.
2: So this is like what Home Depot wishes its
1: orchid selection looked like.
0: Three. (laughs) Home Depot's got orchid
1: envy. Oh my god.
2: But before we get too far into this, we need to make one thing clear: one does not simply walk into the Boston Flower Exchange.
1: Oh no! Oh, okay.
0: I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry about All that. right. All right. I'm
3: super sorry too, Tony.
1: I didn't realize okay. I didn't talk to the right
0: But people. you'll have to stop now. Yeah. Okay.
2: It turns out the Boston Flower Exchange actually has some really tight security restrictions.
1: Not just recommendations. I had to call two separate public relations firms to get permission to record, but eventually they gave us the green light.
3: right, we we obtained our proper permission. That's Bob.
1: The morning Emily Herzig allowed us to piggyback onto her trip to the exchange, she was picking up the raw materials for her floral designs. Little fruit tree branches, funny little bunches of leaves, and, yes, flowers.
3: I went up this way, you guys. (laughs) It was, like,
2: really crowded
3: over there, and I'm dangerous with these cards.
2: All the while, burly guys in the background, hefting entire magnolia tree branches, you know, lots of little pansies, miniature orchids. And the smell. Even for those of us... Sam, I I who can't smell sale. freesias. Ugh. But while Emily was piling up her double-decker cart at one of her vendors, we learned one of the core tenets of coming to a place like the flower
1: exchange. It's not the volume here, it's the quality. That's Chris Goodman, one of Emily's suppliers down at the market. He started working summers in his family's flower shop in high school, and he's still here 25 years later.
2: And he has surprisingly global connections.
1: Guestimate, you don't have to count them all. Ten, twelve... Probably quite
2: a few. Those are different countries he's counting up. I know earlier we explained that eighty percent of the flowers imported to the US come from South America, but that last
1: twenty percent are coming from all over the world. Wait, Canada? Yeah, a lot of stuff
3: comes from Canada.
1: Which, if we're being totally honest, is totally wild. It is! Okay, so you've gotta have relationships with people all over the globe. How do you do like how do you find them? Good question. They find us. Actually. (laughs) Doesn't it sound like they're all in, like, the flower Illuminati?
2: Secretly controlling your holidays since the 1970s? Yeah, it kind of does. But so, while there are certain trade routes that are much more popular, we get most of our flowers from South America, Europe relies heavily on Africa... This is a global industry.
1: And it has to be. Because when a person is getting married, they don't really care that Lily of the Valley is out of season. So their hardworking florist will haggle with their wholesaler and they'll track down some Lily of the Valley from Japan for
0: a price.
2: So does it ever kind of amaze you how much goes into this business?
3: Yeah, and I definitely like am amazed at how much floral product we consume as an industry. Like, I definitely stop myself sometimes and just like look at my studio and, and from one day it'll be packed. Like every corner of it will have buckets of flowers and like literally the next day it's gone. And I do often just sit there like, where does it all go?
2: Where does it all go? Well, much of the industry isn't going through wholesale markets anymore
1: because most people aren't getting their flowers from the shop downtown anymore. They're either going to a supermarket, or they're going to the biggest store on earth, the internet.
4: When I was a boy, I thought flowers were magic. You know what? I still do. I'm Merlin Olson, and I've seen the magic of flowers. Delight a wonderful dad. Make a special day perfect. The magic of flowers, a magic your FTD florist understands.
1: We're talking about FTD, FTD internet flower juggernauts.
2: To be fair, FTD has been around much longer than the internet. It was founded in 1910 as florist telegraph delivery. And it's not the only big flora business out there.
1: There's 1-800-Flowers, Teleflora, ProFlowers, every other flower-related play on words that you can imagine.
2: And most of these big companies work in a similar way. Let's say you live here in the NHPR studios in Concord. I hope you don't. I hope you don't, too. But if you do and you want to send flowers to your friend in Austin, Texas...
1: So in the FTD universe, you can go to your local florist and place an order with them. They transfer that order to a local florist in Austin through the FTD network. Bing, bang, boom.
2: Your florist gets a percentage, FTD gets a cut, and that local florist, thousands of miles away, gets a sale.
1: And that sort of transaction takes up a big part of the flower market. Teleflora claims to have 15,000 shops in its network alone.
2: After a boom in the market in the 1990s, the number of retail florist shops in the U.S. dropped. But the industry value has continued to grow dramatically.
1: Like a lot. In 2015, the U.S. floral industry was worth $31 billion.
2: And at the end of this long and wild supply chain, from a greenhouse in Ecuador to an airport in Miami, to a wholesaler or a market, and then through a retailer to your doorstep. That's
3: some of our favorite spring things.
2: That's still a lot of roses, even when they're going for a couple dollars a stem.
1: Okay, but here is my question Why are roses so popular? Are they just everybody's flower?
2: I don't think so. I think it's more that roses are available and they're in demand. Amy was telling us that the best-selling flowers aren't necessarily the best love flowers. They're just the ones we're used to buying. We've gotten used to this more technologically advanced way of growing
4: things, where if you want a rose in February, you get a rose in February, <laughs> even though
2: that's kind of an absurd idea.
1: So if Valentine's Day happened any other time of year, like summer?
2: We might be giving bunches of dahlias, not roses. Genetically modified roses at that, bred for size and color.
1: Okay, but if people want huge, colorful flowers, why not just get silk ones?
2: Sam, oh Sam, have you learned nothing?
4: We can all spot a fake, and I think it's not the point. Like the point is not to have a colorful blob, but the point is to bring some of the some of the outdoors inside. You know, to have something of
2: nature, but also something that's kind of exotic. So yeah, people will spend fifty or a hundred dollars. <laughs> oh, God! Y- you okay? <laughs> uh. For an arrangement that will last, you know, a week or two, looking beautiful. And that's worth it. That's the goal of the industry.
1: If all of this is getting too big, too industrial, if there are too many voices trying to explain this system to you, don't worry. Remember Emily, the floral designer from earlier? She's your other option.
2: Producer Logan Shannon and I visited Emily's studio in Littleton, New Hampshire, where she was gearing up for that other boon of the floral industry, wedding season.
1: Wedding season!
2: Beginning in May, they'll start doing more events, about 40 over the course of the summer, and that's on top of the normal say-it-with-flowers stuff, like birthdays and special occasions. Is it in the main ballroom or the presidential? It's in the garden
3: room, which is the small dining room. Yeah. It's like the
2: function and here she's right. talking to Emma Broomenschenkel, her assistant and all-around right-hand woman.
3: What we'll do, um, let's talk about the first two weekends.
1: And for all of you who are uncomfortable with the whole flower supply chain thing, the other option is something Emma and Emily work with fairly often, local plants and flowers.
2: The American-grown flower movement is picking up steam, educating people about the potential profit in flower farms these days. And in Emily's case, she does try to work with more local flower growers, not only because it's popular, but there's a lot of practical reasons, too.
3: And there's a need for it, and it's environmentally better to be sourcing things from within the United States and cutting down on that carbon footprint of things being shipped over
4: from all over the world. And Amy Stewart made a good point about this, too. When you buy local flowers, you're not just supporting a local farmer growing flowers you may well be supporting someone who's also growing your food and trying to find a way to make that you know financially viable for them.
1: This is all well and good. I think we can agree that we're all for farming opportunities and for reducing our carbon footprint but there's a reason why New England isn't the nation's breadbasket or whatever the nickname for the Midwest is.
2: Yeah we're not exactly in a prime flower growing zone up here. Which makes sourcing locally a little tricky. That's actually been more so my
3: challenge about sourcing locally, is being able to get enough quantity, you know. So it's really not unlikely for me to source flowers from various sources, the same type of flower.
1: So yeah, if you want to opt out of this wild and crazy industry, it means no more bouquets on Mother's Day and Valentine's Day.
2: Or at least fewer roses. You know, mix it up. Because there's a reason we pick up flowers from the supermarket or put in a rush order for a bouquet when you've forgotten your friend's birthday, and why silk flowers simply will not do. Like the FTD guy said, flowers are magic. Emily's assistant put it like this.
3: When you walk in
2: there and there's nothing, and then we walk out of there, and it's like a completely different different world. world. And it's, Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely so important. So, Sam, here we are at the end. And I'm thinking you should have the last word. Me me? Yeah. But you know, I'd really love it if you said it with flowers.
1: Said what?
2: Come on, Sam. It's been a long and twisted road. The portrait of a man, you, learning about the origins of an industry worth billions.
1: Are you guys really gonna make me do this? I haven't even I haven't even seen the movie. Come on,
2: yes, Sam, yes.
1: Fine. Rosebud. Outside In was produced this week by Molly Donahue and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Logan Shannon, and Jimmy Gutierrez.
2: Special thanks go to the Society of American Florists and their CEO, Peter Moran. Also, thanks to Emily for bringing back that bonsai Sam bought and then forgot on her cart. It's doing well in its new home.
1: Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder.
2: If you've got a question for the Ask Sam hotline, give us a call. We're always looking for new rabbit holes to dive down into. Leave us a voicemail at 1-844-GO-OTTER. And don't forget to leave a number so we can call you back.
1: This week's episode included tracks from Poddington Bear, Gumble, and Prakatoa. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. i <laughs> good.